The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. But first, the, the UN Security Council may be on the verge of passing a motion on Gaza if the US votes yes or abstains today. And this would hopefully bring about a cessation of the violence in Gaza, but for how long? We're joined now by Professor and Political Analyst at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin, Scott Lucas. Scott, good morning. Good morning to you, Pat. Now, they have been playing around with the wording of this resolution for days now, and the vote has been postponed again and again in the hope of getting the US on side so as not to exercise a veto and perhaps even vote yes. What do you make of what's emerging? Well, I'm far more cautious um, than your introduction, Pat, that this could lead to a cessation of hostilities uh, because to get US support for the resolution... Uh, after days of negotiation, this resolution has been watered down, and some could say even rendered toothless. Uh, I think there's three significant changes that are the reason for my caution. The first is the resolution doesn't call for a ceasefire. It doesn't even call for an urgent suspension of hostilities. In other words, a humanitarian pause. That has been removed at the insistence of the U.S. Instead, it says creating the conditions for a sustainable cessation of hostilities which is a far you know, more vague reference to a possible ceasefire in the distant future. Secondly, and I think importantly, the original draft gave the UN control of aid that was coming into Gaza, which of course is needed because we're in a humanitarian crisis for more than 2 million people there. The US insisted on the removal of that. Instead, the UN coordinates the humanitarian aid with all uh, involved parties. That will include the Israelis, and what that means is, is that the Israelis probably still retain an effective veto on the ground on aid, saying, well, we, we don't think it meets our requirements for security. And then third, uh, a paragraph which referred, which condemned all violations of international humanitarian law on all sides. That paragraph has been stripped out. And again, you can guess why, because it would make the Israelis vulnerable to claims that they had violated international humanitarian law with the killing of civilians over the past mm. two and a half months. So suppose in this watered-down version it gets passed. What does it actually mean? I think the first thing is we're not certain it's going to get passed. Even though this meets the U.S. requirements, uh, we don't know if the Russians will accept it now because they may come in and say that it, it isn't an effective resolution and beat their chest and say, we side with Gaza. And uh, There are other countries that are also concerned about it. If it passes, you're going to see headlines, which is, Hurrah, the United States, uh, for the first time in a long time, has voted for a resolution, uh, which at least says maybe Israel should stop operations in Gaza. Uh, for the first time, it, the U.S. has not vetoed a resolution to give Israel cover. You know, that, that may have some symbolic importance, but I think what we really have to say is in the weeks to come and going into the new year, what is the situation on the ground? So first of all, do we move towards at least a significant humanitarian pause? For example, to release more hostages in exchange for more detainees in Israeli prisons. Can that humanitarian pause become a second pause? And if it does, then I won't be so cautious. Secondly, and significantly, will the Israelis allow significant amounts of aid, not just token amounts of aid, to get into all of Gaza? And what I have to tell you, Pat, is, is that you cannot get aid into Gaza while the Israelis are continuing their military operations. 
Far from pulling back on the military operations, they've expanded them in recent days. So 400 Palestinians, most of them civilians, killed in the last 48 hours, and you now no longer have any functioning hospitals, none in the northern part of Gaza, and only nine that are partially operating in the southern part. Now, the, the, the question of uh, its binding effect, I mean, uh, we know that a, a vote by the General Assembly has no effect at all. It, it just is an indication of how the general body might feel about some issue. What about the Security Council resolution? What effect does it have? Well, it, it, it is binding on all members of the United Nations. Uh, you know, so this will be quote, binding in, in the abstract. But the, the problem with the resolution is binding for what? There's no requirements in this resolution as it's now written. There's no requirement on Israel to accept a ceasefire. There's no requirement on Israel to stop military operations even for 24 hours. Uh, there's no requirement on Israel to allow the aid in. Uh, it only says that it has to consult with the coordinator. And there certainly is no requirement for the Israelis um, to refrain from any action which could violate uh, international humanitarian mm. law. So, again, in theory, yeah, the Security Council resolution could be very important by now, prescribing what must be done politically and militarily, but there's no such prescription uh, in this current draft. I spoke to the Israeli ambassador to Ireland uh, yesterday, uh, Dana Ehrlich, and um, she said that uh, they would not abide by any resolution that did not condemn the actions of Hamas of October the 7th and Hamas's actions since then, and which did not insist on the release of all hostages. Well, I mean, that's Israel's get-out-of-jail card, because they've said this repeatedly for weeks to prevent any action by the Security Council and to object to the General Assembly. And that is, unless you specifically make Hamas the bad guys here. So in other words, you have a resolution which names Hamas but doesn't name Israel. We're not going to support it. And I'll repeat, this draft condemned all parties who violate international uh, humanitarian law. That includes Hamas, of course, as well as the Israelis. But because it isn't a one-sided resolution that says, oh, it's Hamas that's committed all the violations, all the war crimes, then Israel will maintain this public posture, which is, you know, we're the victims here. We're, we're, we're not the perpetrators of any crimes, of any mass killings uh, in Gaza. Mm. Now, the, the wording, which we don't really have the precise text of, and I don't know whether there's any more horse trading to be done before the vote, uh, but uh, the Secretary General should appoint a coordinator given the responsibility of facilitating, coordinating, monitoring and verifying that aid cargo is humanitarian in nature, who would also be consulting all relevant parties. It strikes me that, the, you know, by the time all of this happens, many more people will be dead one way or the other. Way or the other. Yes, absolutely right. Again, I repeat that, you know, the death tolls now past 20,000 in Gaza. Uh, the large majority of them are civilians, 40 percent are children. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, 200 a day now being killed. So the death toll is going back up. And those words you read out, I'll ask your listeners to play this back later and then tell me what exactly does that mean? I mean, in essence, what it means is, OK, the U.N.'s got a guy who has to consult with uh, Hamas. He's got to consult with Israel. But if Hamas says no, we object. Well, then that U.N. coordinator has no authority to enforce any decision. And if the Israelis say, no, we don't like that. Sorry, not going to agree to that. That U.N. staff member, again, is completely powerless. 
Now, there's the political game being played at home, of course, uh, domestically for Joe Biden as well. And it, it looks like to some extent he, he's hemorrhaging support in certain quarters of the Democratic Party. Um, what is he to do? Um, because he did uh, reference, maybe he didn't intend it to be widely dispersed, but he did reference indiscriminate bombing by uh, the Israelis. Um, where does it leave him? Well, I mean, the immediate situation, of course, Pat, is that you're threading the eye of a needle here, which is that on the one hand, the Biden administration doesn't want to come out, uh, at least publicly, in terms of condemnation uh, of the Israeli military action. They'll simply you know, call on Israel to limit civilian casualties. <clears throat> but on the other hand, uh, they need to show that they, they are concerned about what's happening to Gaza civilians because you do have uh, a significant uh, number of, of voters, not just Arab Americans, uh, not just Muslims, but a significant number of voters who are thinking, wait, that, you know, do I really want to support a democratic administration that's letting this happen? I think if, if this mass killing continued well into the spring and in the summer, then I think it poses a political problem as Biden faces the Republican nominee who could be Donald Trump, but not necessarily. Uh, watch out for Nikki Haley. Uh, but I think if this war is wrapped up in the sense that tens of thousands are killed, but that the military operations stop by the spring, it'll probably drop to the bottom of Americans' agendas. Because when you talk about the issues that are out there, the economy, women's rights, including abortion, when you talk about housing, education, when you talk about health care, and of course, when you talk about just having a competent president, given Donald Trump's legal troubles, that would probably be the priority over what's happening in Gaza. So it may not uh, be writ large on the American domestic political uh, agenda. Uh, Donald Trump has more and more uh, troubles coming his way and whether or not the uh, decision by the Supreme Court in Colorado um, will uh, eventually get a judgment from the Supreme Court of the United States that either allows him in the game or uh, expels him from the game. You mentioned Nikki Haley as a possibility. What are the pollsters saying about her possibility of a beating a Joe Biden? I mean, the polls are suggesting that Trump would beat a Joe Biden uh, at the moment, although the campaign hasn't really started. What about her? Could she beat Joe Biden? First, let me give you a scoop that almost no one's noticing in the media, Pat. And that is, is that while Donald Trump is still comfortably ahead in the first caucus, uh, which will be in Iowa in early February, when it comes to the first primary, the first vote, which is in New Hampshire, also in February, the latest poll has Nikki Haley uh, closing the gap uh, to 43 to 30. She has 30 percent of the vote um, in that poll, which is more than double what she had a couple of weeks ago. Now, that's just one poll, but it does show that Haley may have a chance of upsetting the odds in New Hampshire. And that completely changes the nature of the Republican race. If she was to carry on with that upset and win the nomination, she handily is ahead of Joe Biden in the polls. Whereas Trump and Biden are running neck to neck in the polls, Haley's got about a four to five percent lead consistently in the polling over Biden. She actually looks to be a stronger candidate for the Republicans than Trump. But of course, Trump's white noise and the fact that the U.S. media keeps giving him almost all the coverage, that continues to be the challenge that Haley has to try to overcome. OK, and, and finally on that, you know, some people, moderate Republicans or uh, those who just despise Trump but feel they are somehow enthralled to him, 
I mean, is there any moment when they will seize the opportunity to rid their party of the man? Not the not Trumpism, that's alive and well, it would appear in many parts of the Republican Party, but to rid themselves of the man who threatens all around him, if you don't uh, tow his line, then he will dump on you and uh, humiliate you and probably damage you politically. Is there any sense that Republicans will say, it's about time we got rid of this fella? You know, you would think, Pat, that if Trump is convicted in any of the criminal cases next year, given that that total of four cases has 91 felony convictions, given that those, some of those felony, sorry, uh, felony indictments, given that some of those felony indictments are effectively about trying to overthrow the U.S. government and stay into office, including incitement of the Capitol attack, you think they would. But the Republican Party has been codependent with Donald Trump since 2016. Um, and it's very hard as a codependent to break away from an abuser. So if you actually look at it in the last few weeks, what you have is not just the Trumpists, but other House members doubling down on their support of Trump, that he's the victim here, that he's the one being persecuted by the legal system. And indeed, Republican senators are actually mildly echoing that line as well. Uh, even in the most recent decision, as you noticed, uh, the Colorado Supreme Court ruling that Trump cannot be on the ballot because he encouraged insurrection. You have Republicans saying, oh, tut, 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 tut. Uh, you know, this is playing politics. In other words, choosing Donald Trump over the U.S. legal system. Scott Lucas, uh, professor and political analyst at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin. Thank you for all your contributions in 2023. And we look forward to talking to you in 2024. And a very happy Christmas, Scott. And the very best to you, Pat, and to all your listeners for the holidays. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.